And I'm going to go get my Bible while you turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19. Revelation, we good? Can you hear me? Yeah? Revelation chapter 19, uh, I hear something there, great. Great, yeah, so open your Bible if you would, Revelation 19. Now if you're just joining us, and frankly if you've been here for a while, let me just begin with a bit of a book overview because I could think of a few things harder than jumping into a, a church that's going through Revelation in chapter 19 for the first week. So, the book of Revelation has two halves to it. The first half is chapters 1 through 11. Second half begins in chapter 12. We are therefore in the second half of the book of Revelation. The second half is a story of cosmic conflict. If you want to put a header over the second half of the book of Revelation, it is the story of the conflict between the enemy of God and God himself. So back in chapter 12, this conflict was introduced by showing the church enter the stage. We could could think of of a stage. The church comes onto the stage. She is pictured as a beautiful woman betrothed to Christ. Vulnerable, though. Onto the stage comes a dragon, picturing Satan himself. And he immediately begins to do war with Christ, but fails. And so turns his gaze in hate at the woman. And begins to consider how to destroy her. That's the story we're in right now. Now, as the chapters have gone on from chapter 12... The dragon, Satan himself, has begun to enlist certain lieutenants into his army, captains of his forces. We were introduced to three in particular. The first, in chapter 13, was the beast. It's this hideous picture of a powerful beast with many horns and many heads, and it comes to devour. It's a picture of the way Satan corrupts human power to get what he wants. So he corrupts power. That is like actual power institutions on earth, like empires and states that use the sword to keep people from converting to Christ or persecute the church when it has decided to follow Christ. That's the beast. That's the first lieutenant. The second lieutenant comes onto the stage and it's this false prophet and it comes deceiving and speaking lies and and exercising a kind of spiritual power over people. So this is the spiritual power behind false religions and the lies that get promulgated all over the world and enslave tens of millions of people into Buddhism and Shintoism and Islam and atheism, and secularism, and Western philosophies. The spiritual force behind all of that 
is this, this false prophet. False prophets aimed at the church as well. It's enslaved the world, but it's seeking to sow doubts into the hearts of believers wherever it can. Finally, the third lieutenant of the dragon comes onto the stage, the third and final. And this is not a beast that overpowers. It's not a false prophet that deceives. It's a prostitute that seduces. And she seduces the kings of the earth and the peoples of the earth with the wine of her spiritual adultery, pulling them away from the God who created all people to give themselves to other things. And she speaks to the church as well, who is to be saved for one husband who waits for her. The church is tempted by the prostitute. The stage then is full of enemies and the church is vulnerable and hunted and hated by these enemies. If you, if you wanna think about kind of a, the, the arc of the story, this is the high water mark of evil in world history. If you wonder where we are in the story, by the way, that's where we are in the story. The enemy and all his lieutenants are on the stage right now and are hunting the church right now and are enslaving the world right now. This is descriptive of where we live, of, of our day and time. Now, beginning the last chapter that we studied together back in chapter 18, we saw not just the introduction of that third lieutenant, the prostitute called Babylon, but we actually saw her judgment, her destruction, such that by the end it was fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all God's people were worshiping because the seducer had fallen. So that's great news for the church because that means the water begins to recede. Today, we're gonna watch the downfall of the other two lieutenants in what is often called the last battle because today someone else comes onto the stage of world history again. It's a good passage. Because <laughs> man, it's been a while since Jesus stood on this earth. Whew. And when he stands again, that's a good day for his people. So we're gonna consider Revelation 19. We're gonna begin in verse 11 together. It's two paragraphs we're gonna look at. I'm just gonna read the first one as we get to witness Christ's ride back into human history upon this earth. So Revelation 19, beginning with verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword 
with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw heaven opened. Oh, what John got to see. What a moment he got to witness. A moment we, obviously, we have not seen this moment yet. This is, this is now the return of Christ that we're talking of, which will be the end of the age that we're living in, right? So this is John seeing the end of the age and heaven is opened and behold, he says, look, check it out. Can you see this? A white horse and one seated on the horse. A white horse is a victor's horse. When the Roman generals would go out and, and win all their conquests and, and win all this glory, they would come back into the city, leading their army, riding a white horse, the horse of victory. <laughs> this ruler rides out to war, riding a white horse. So confident is he of his victory. He's on his way to war and he's already riding a white horse. And his name is called Faithful and True. Hmm. He rides for his bride who has been hunted since chapter 12 and persecuted and seduced and harmed. And his bride has often wavered, but he has not. She's often wandered, but he is not. She has at times been unfaithful, but he is not, for he is called faithful. His name is Faithful. And he, good news friends, is faithful to an unfaithful people. Glory to God. And he comes and his name is Faithful. And he comes because he loves his church he has always loved his church. He loves his church now. He will always love his church because he is faithful. And he's true. The one who comes is called faithful and true. And he is the first true thing on the stage. Because we've got the dragon who is the father of lies. We've got the prostitute who seduces through deception. We've got the false prophet, if you can't get from the name, speaks false things to draw people into false religion. And we got this coercive beast which promises life to those who yield to it, but only delivers death. The stage of human history is surrounded by and infected by deception and lies. The kingdom of darkness is built upon lies and into that walks one named truth. And not only can he cut down the armies of the enemy, he can, praise the Lord, cut down all the lies of the enemy as well and make clear what is true once again. And behold, here he comes. And it says in verse 11, in righteousness he judges and makes war. Righteous judgment. Righteous war. 
sometimes in human history, uh, we, we, we've talked about this idea, right, of a kind of just war. The West has this idea of a just war, a war that can be waged justly. It does seem that at times, not all wars, but at times, it is the better thing to go to war. It is, it is better to go to war because of the evil that's happening. And, and only war can stop the evil that's happening. Right? But even there, just war, we could even say right war amongst men, even there, atrocities happen. Even then, war is hell. Awful stuff happens in that fog of war. This one comes with something totally different. He makes war in righteousness. There are no atrocities on the margins. There's nothing going to be hidden at the end. At the end, like, oh, well, you know, whose missile bombed that hospital type stuff. At the end, everything he does in war will be right and appropriate and good and to be worthy of monuments being built in his honor because he judges rightly and justly. Verse 12, the beginning, says, his eyes are like a flame of fire. That's a picture of Jesus, isn't it? His eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, this speaks to a reality about Jesus, and that is that his gaze pierces through every deception. There is nothing hidden from him. There's nothing that he cannot see. Nothing is unknown. Nothing is obscured. Nothing is forgotten. So the other day, I had a conversation with one of my kids. And I had needed to correct them prior to this conversation. We were coming back around to that situation. And as we were talking, they shared some things with me that I didn't realize, that I didn't know. Some, some motives that they had had, some, some things that were pressing on them that put their actions in a very different light. And I had to apologize to them because my response was to what I had seen and I had missed some other stuff. So I had to make it right with them. When King Jesus returns, he's not coming to apologize. He will have no need to apologize. He will not miss the context. He'll not miss the background. He'll not miss the, the oh gosh, the crazy stuff that can go into our lives. When you think of a sinner doing sin, that sinner's also been sinned against in their lives. He knows all of it. He sees all of it. He weighs all of it. And in righteousness, he judges. And friend, if you don't know Jesus, that should scare you to death. Because there won't be a debate. He's just going to judge in righteousness. And he already knows whatever it is you want to say. He already knows whether you're lying or not. If you don't know the Lord, oh, this passage should call you to repent. Today is the day of repentance. So he will come with eyes that see all, 
And he won't just see like your life and your circumstances and the pressures and the difficulties and, and all the things. But he will discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. Better than even you can. He will know the why you did everything you did. Because he comes as the righteous judge. Back to verse 12 again. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. That is to say, many crowns. Now, if you've been following the storyline, lots of the bozos, I mean characters on the stage, have crowns on. Usurpers and pretenders that they are. And finally comes one on the stage who's supposed to be wearing the crowns. And he wears many of them. And he comes wearing the authority given him by his father. He didn't usurp this. In fact, so far from usurping, he never sought this. He never grasped for this. This is the one who, 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 didn't, who didn't fight for his own authority. He came and made himself nothing. And said, equality with God? That's not something I'm even going to grasp. Though he is equal with God. He didn't grasp equality with God. He didn't sacrifice others to get to where he's going. Unlike all the spiritual forces aligned against him. Who use their servants for their good. He gives of himself for his servants good. That's the story of our Jesus. This, this is the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Jesus who emptied himself and became nothing for his people and was unknown on planet earth. And then when he became known, it was to be known as the subject of mockery and scorn that we deserved because of our sin. That's what he was known for. And he emptied himself and so far from seeking authority, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the one who wears the crown. Aren't you glad he wears the crown? Glory to God, he wears the crown. He got one crown on earth. And it was that crown of thorns. And now it is that, that scarred brow that finally wears crowns he deserves. And he rides into human history. And his church says glory. And his enemies cry in terror. Because he's coming with work to do. Verse 13. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the word of God. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. We may, we may immediately think of the fact of his shedding of his own blood. And, and yes, and amen, he did shed his own blood, but that's not what this is talking about. This is picturing blood at the hem of the garment as you might have water down at the hem of your garment if you were to walk through really wet grass or through a stream. This, this is the blood of his enemies for he comes to tread down his enemies. And that's visible even on his, on his robe. Verse 14. And the armies of heaven 
arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now we might ask, who are these armies of heaven? Certainly it's true when Christ returns, his angels have a role. His angels will return with him. But that's not the army talked about here. This army is the saints. This, this is the bride of Christ. And you might believe me, but I don't know why you should believe me. Let me show you why you should believe me before you believe me. And that is up in verse eight, the same thing is said of them. Notice this army very uniquely is arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. That's verse 14. Verse eight, talking about the bride says, it was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. Exact same phrase, same chapter. In, in chapter eight, she gets dressed. And in chapter four, and I'm sorry, verse eight, she gets dressed. Verse 14, she rides to war. This is the bride of Christ following him on victory horses, defended by her defender, following after her champion. And she goes to war with him. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which, with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This king carries no weapon. There is no sword in his hand because the sword proceeds from his mouth. And again, this is a picture of the authoritative voice that is Christ's. This voice is all he needs to fight his battles. His weapon is in his mouth. It is his word. How does he fight? He speaks. He need lift not a hand. He need lift not a pinky. He need move not at all. He simply speaks. And it is the voice of power. It is the voice of command. This is the voice that called the earth into orbit. This is the voice that ignited the sun. This is the voice that lit the stars. This is the voice that you responded to when you turned to Jesus Christ. And this is the voice of power. And when he speaks, his enemies will discover that there is no armor, there is no shield, there is no sword that can parlay the strength of his word. And he will destroy his enemies with the blow of his word. And it says, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Again, that winepress image is treading his enemies. And that's where the blood on his robe is coming from. And he does so in the fury of the wrath of God. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what does this mean? This means on that day, it's gonna be obvious to everyone who sees him that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You can read it by seeing him. That's all you gotta do. You see him and you know, it's instinctual, it's obvious this one is in charge. 
This one is over all. You see, this is the confession of the church today. We know him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We elect few, faithful remnant, because you can be sure the world does not acknowledge him as King of Kings. You can think, I mean, think right now of many a king, many a leader. Who acknowledges Jesus as the King of Kings? Who declares him as the Lord of Lords? What right now the church seeks to proclaim and worships the Lord as in a kind of secret will be obvious on that last day. And all will know and all will see this one who comes riding before his army. He is before and above all others. The king has ridden onto the stage of history. And now the battle will begin. Verse 17 through the end of the chapter. Follow along with me. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth with their armies, gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who was in its presence, who had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It is a gruesome picture. It is a stunning turn. I guess if we're used to reading the book of Revelation, we may expect that an angel is going to say something because that happens quite a bit. But what this angel said, we were not expecting. Issues not a word of, of a warning against the bad army or of encouragement against the good army. He speaks to the birds. Soon you're going to have a feast Start flying over now. Get ready, because you don't want to miss this one. You will feast upon the wicked from every station of life. Kings and captains, mighty men, small and great, free and slave, everyone aligned against the Lord. And so the birds gather overhead as the armies gather below. It's some kind of Mordor picture this is where Mordor gets its pictures and it certainly is an ill omen as the birds cry out over top of the armies verse 19 then pictures the standoff between these two armies everything from chapter 12 has led to this moment the dragon recruiting three lieutenants to hunt and defile and harm the people of God. 
And finally, the people of God's champion stands before them to fight for them and protect them. So the king and his people in white, the beast and his people in wickedness. And for a brief moment with the birds flying overhead, these two armies stand off. And I say a brief moment, don't blink or you'll miss it. This is but a moment. The dragon stands with his gathered host. Already, remember he had three lieutenants? Already one of them has fallen, right? Last chapter, we already said goodbye to the prostitute. There's only two lieutenants left, though those are powerful lieutenants of his and they lead this army. The people of God led by their champion, the people of wickedness led by theirs. And in the next two verses, it's all over. Glory to God. Second half of verse 20 says, these two, these two, that is the two remaining lieutenants of the dragon, these two, the the beast and the false prophet, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And with that, the three lieutenants are no more. Simply thrown alive into the lake that is hell. And now Satan alone commands the wicked of the earth. Although he is not pictured in this perspective of the last battle. We're gonna see him next chapter, next week. So with the lieutenants gone, verse 21, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So is the last battle. I wanna point out a few things. The first is that only one sword is drawn. Friend, uh, I hate to break this to you, uh, but you're not the knight in shining armor in this army. You're not gonna ride out to battle to finally do battle on this for the sake of Jesus. He is our champion. And he will fight for his bride. And he will do so in righteousness and justice and with the sword of his mouth. And his enemies will fall. And his gathered church behind him will rejoice at the fall of her enemies. And Jesus will finish what he began when he came 2,000 years ago. Now, the last battle, actually, we get the benefit of two camera views on the last battle. You can almost picture that in making a movie or something, right? Like you can have the, the camera that's over here that's seeing a certain perspective on the battle. And then you've got the camera that's over here that shows a different perspective on the very same battle, all right? We just finished camera angle one of the last battle. Next week, we're gonna look at camera angle two. That's what chapter 20 shows us, the second perspective on this last battle. Because we might be confused at this point that Satan seems to have gotten off the hook, that the lieutenants were taken out, but the dragon wasn't mentioned. Don't worry, we're gonna see that next week. 
Glory to God. And one day we will see that with our eyes. Glory to God. But with the view that we have, grim as it is, defeated are the enemies of God and protected are the people of God. And what stands between them? One man, the God-man Christ Jesus, who both protects his people and defeats his enemies. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is protecting his people. This is why history is getting interrupted at this point because he has decided no more. No more will you hunt my people. No more will you tempt her away from me. No more will you sow lies into her mind and doubt into her soul. No more will you coerce her and persecute her because of her love for me. No more, it's over. And he steps in and in righteousness defends his bride. And the host behind him shares in his victory. Church, this is where history's going. This is where history's going and And I'm here to tell you this this morning. God's word is here to make clear this for us this morning. Because I'll tell you what, you're not going to see this anywhere else. You're not going to pick this up on the nightly news. For those of you old enough to know what the nightly news was. (laughs) You're not going to see this in culture. What you'll be reminded of in culture is that today is the day of the beast. That's, that's when we look around, that's what we see. Today is the, the false prophet's day where it deceives the tens of thousands and tens of millions away from God. Today is the prostitute's day in her wine of her sexual immorality, her adultery against God. All the coercion and deception and temptation. That's the day we live in. And church, so long as this day remains, that's the day we're going to live in. We live with the three lieutenants on the stage. And the church, you and me, were that woman seeking to keep themselves faithful unto Christ, looking for his return. Do you get tired? tired of the fight just like weary of another day like of fighting that same sin again and again of like I have to repent of that again I have to fight that again I have to I have to walk through this trial another day or be grieved over this loss for another day or to witness some terrible sorrow another day. It is easy to be tired and weary and discouraged and disheartened. And the lieutenants on the stage are all about it. If you don't think the prostitute whispers false promises into your discouragement, 
course she does. That's part of what's so doggone discouraging about this day and this time. And yet we look ahead to a day when all their threatenings are shown to be false and all their promises are shown to be false and everyone who aligns themselves with them finds that there is nothing good. Their champions never thought to fight for them. That's not how this was going to work. And if they had, it wouldn't have mattered. But that's not what they were thinking. On that last day, every false promise will be shown to be false. Every false hope will evaporate. Every lie will be revealed. And that day's coming. The day's coming when our king steps back onto the stage. The day's coming, tired church, weary saint, still in the battle, still in the fight. Keep battling. Keep fighting. Keep running. Keep walking. The day is coming when Jesus will fight for you. That day is coming. That day is certain. That day is secure. And when he comes, what's his name? He will be called faithful and true. The one who's coming, he will be faithful and true. Do you know who he is today? Today he is faithful and true. He's not switching names on that last day to confuse us. Today he is faithful and he is true. Today he is faithful. Today he is true. Today he is trustworthy. Today he's worthy of our praise, worthy of our life, worthy of our worship, worthy of our attention, worthy of our suffering, worthy of our enduring, worthy of our weariness. He is worthy today. So let's follow him today. So listen, so many, we can look at the book of Revelation and I understand trying to figure it out, all right? It it takes some figuring to figure it out. But we can, we can kind of get to the point where, okay, I got it figured out as though that's the point. That's not the point. The point of this is not even see this and believe this. The point is live today like you believe this. That's the point. That's why this is here. So that we can live today before we see Jesus, knowing that he's coming. So that we can live today while we have to listen to the lies of the false prophet and say, no, I know the one who is faithful and true and he's faithful and true today. And I'm gonna stand with him today that I might, by his grace, stand with him on that day. So church, the call is to see Christ today. Trust Christ today. Follow Christ today that we might stand with him on that day. And may he give us grace to do so. Amen. Worship team, come on up. And let's stand. Jesus, we declare today you are worthy. Today you are faithful. Today you are true. 
Today, you are worthy of all of our praise and life and worship. And Lord, we, we are thankful that even when we have been unfaithful, still you are faithful. Fill us with your spirit that we could worship you as you are worthy to be worshiped. With our lives this week and with our voices right now. In Jesus' name, amen.